Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift. You're with Ian. Today's show is about the American dream. Uh, We're going to hear a lot of different perspectives on this question from people as diverse as the son of Don Chip, the former Australian Democrats leader. He's talking about drug law reform and the effect that it had on the US presidential elections. A famous African-American essayist by the name of James Baldwin, who was very active in the 1960s and was basically driven out of the United States by the racism that occurred there in those years and in subsequent years. The former president of the United States, Barack Obama, will be hearing from him, and also the effect that uh, US presidential elections has on the Palestinian people. We're going to also feature some local bands who have a really interesting gig on tomorrow in West End in Bunny Upper Park, just along from the uh, the corner of Vulture and Melbourne. It's called Move 11, and that it stands for Makeshift Outdoor Venue Experiment, and that's on tomorrow, and we'll give you more information about that, and we'll even play a couple of songs, one from Franz Dowling and another one from the songs of Tom Smith. So let's get into it. The US presidency is first. Trump's refusal to transfer power to President-elect Joe Biden has caused a lot of speculation and comment about the office of President of the United States and of democracy itself. The last six presidents who are still alive have come from different political outlooks and different backgrounds. Only Trump has refused to acknowledge defeat after his first term. To fail to be re-elected is a major setback for both Trump and the 70 million plus people that voted for him. Even George W. Bush and Bill Clinton were re-elected to a second term. For example, George W. lied to the world about Iraq having weapons of mass destruction. Bush's response to 9-11, the Iraq war, cost millions of lives and destroyed one of the most secular and richest countries in the Middle East. Iraq had nothing to do with the attacks on the World Trade Center. Despite this, George W. won the popular vote and 283 electoral college votes to serve a second term as president, something his father, George Bush Sr., was unable to do. Wars win votes at least in the United States. Both Democrat presidents, Clinton and Obama, won re-election by increasing US power abroad while people in the United States became poorer. 
George W. Bush was in his second term when Hurricane Katrina destroyed New Orleans and its residents remained without water, food and shelter. Meanwhile, Bush prosecuted the war on Iraq and did not send sufficient supplies and troops during the emergency in the Mississippi. The relief effort called FEMA was a failure. As for handing over power, both first-term failures, Jimmy Carter and Bush Sr., gracefully gave way to their successors. Despite Trump's refusal, Biden and Harris will take power in 2021. Biden has already announced policies which are likely to fail the Palestinian people. President Biden is an unwavering supporter of the apartheid state of Israel. Trump, for his part, cut off aid to the Palestinian Authority and declared Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel. He also withdrew funding from the United Nations Agency that millions of Palestinian refugees depend upon for education, food and their livelihoods. Biden is a staunch opponent of the Palestinian civil society's calls for boycotts, divestments and sanctions against Israel. So as the person who occupies the office of president changes, there is little change for the Palestinians and many other people around the world suffering as a result of US foreign policy. So just how did Biden win the presidential race against Trump? Firstly, he beat Bernie Sanders in the primaries to become the Democratic Party nominee. Perhaps if Sleepy Joe was up against a smarter demagogue than Trump, he would have lost. But he didn't. Here is Greg Chip, the president of Drug Law Reform, being interviewed by John Jiggins about how the prohibition of cannabis is beginning to crumble in the US. John Jiggins asks, did drug law reform win the US presidential elections? As a way of background, Greg Chip is the son of Don Chip, who claimed that his political party, the Democrats, would keep the bastards honest. Don Chip was Minister for the Navy in 1967 in the Holt government when Australia was sending more troops to Vietnam, a war we should never have been involved in. In 1977, when Don Chip founded the Australian Democrats, he claimed that he was against the war. Anyway, let's hear from the son, Greg Chip. How did drug law reform go in the US election? Yeah, John, look, it's quite a watershed moment uh, at the election with the first state in America to totally decriminalise personal possession of all drugs. It's, so what um, state was that? That's Oregon, which had the American system is a little bit different to Australia. They have voter initiatives, which are like a uh, referendum, except that they're binding on the government to implement the changes that are voted upon. And Oregon uh, voters agreed to decriminalise and reduce the penalty for possession and personal use of up to a month's supply of previously illicit drugs to a $100 fine, a kid to a parking fine of that level or you can waiver that fine by agreeing to some uh, addiction counselling services but it's not compulsory basically you can get a hundred dollar fine and go on your way it's groundbreaking it's it's what we've been fighting for as a, uh, a charity drug policy australia wants to take the criminal penalties out of drug use and make it a health issue if that's appropriate 
And Oregon also did something with thylacide. Look, absolutely amazing. Again, there was an independent initiative there to regulate psilocybin for counselling and psychological services. How did the various attempts to legalise cannabis go? I think there were a number of states trying to legalise cannabis. Yeah, look, that was again a, a very big change in the state of this election, which is why I say uh, that drugs really won the US election. Five states had, again, voter-initiated ballots to fully legalise adult use. And I should say legalise and regulate. Obviously, there's regulations, access to teens, how they can be sold. Regulations vary across all the states. But there's now 15 states... Almost a third of, a, of American states now have legalised cannabis use for adults. And Arizona, I thought, was one which was really interesting because it actually flipped from a red state to a blue state. I think in that election, neither Trump nor Biden did as well as marijuana. <laughs> so true, John. There seems to be agreement on more or less a bipartisan basis to uh, legalise and regulate cannabis. It started in Colorado in uh, 2013, which was the first state to legalise uh, cannabis. And since then, it's rolled on to 15 states. And there's various arguments to support it. Some of them, let's say, on the, the conservative side of politics, quite keen on the tax revenue generated. On the left of the field, it could perhaps be more of a, a human rights issue. And, but across the board, uh, America is changing. It's undoing... Uh, it's unrelenting war on drug users, which is a good thing for Australia. It's going to take a little bit of, of a while for these effects to uh, permeate through to Australia, where we're still enforcing the prohibition. But uh, I think it's inevitable that change will happen you know, in, in the next five to ten years in Australia. How did New Zealand go? The New Zealand referendum was interesting. There was great optimism going back maybe three months with a... Uh, that there would be a positive result in the referendum to legalise uh, cannabis. Unlike the American voter initiatives, this was uh, an indicative referendum that wasn't binding upon the government, uh, and it was a very, very close finish, with the no's winning by about 51% uh, versus 48% of people uh, that supported legalised cannabis. But it was a very interesting campaign because a lot of the Conservative forces spent a lot of money in the media and, and even with advertising putting the no case, the old misnomers of how dangerous uh, cannabis is and causes mental illness and other things, which did sway the electorate. And then, to my understanding, it's anecdotal evidence, but there was a lot of American money. Some of these American uh, anti-drug groups uh, did support the initiative, their organisations in New Zealand, and uh, ended up with uh, a losing vote, which is very disappointing. But because the vote is so close, almost 50-50, it is still possible that the new government could still implement some form of cannabis legalisation in this parliament. Ahern herself uh, has confessed to having used cannabis so although the result was negative, I'm still quite positive uh, that cannabis reform will happen uh, in New Zealand eventually. So really neither Biden nor Trump should be president and it should be drugs and in particular cannabis. <laughs> Certainly cannabis uh, could be king of America. And uh, yeah, look, it's, it's just good news that the American-led prohibition 
is beginning to crumble. Next time you need coffee for home, drop by the coffee roaster on the corner of Montague Road and Anthony Street West End to roast your own coffee. Their in-house designed and manufactured Piccolo Chinook small batch coffee roaster allows you to roast coffee the way you want in only 15 minutes. With the choice of over 50 coffee origins to choose from, you can roast an award-winning single origin or create your own tasty new blend. The Coffee Roaster, sponsors of 4ZZZ. You're on the paradigm shift. It's a little after 10 past 12, and we're talking about the American dream. The US president is supposed to keep the American dream alive. Let's hear novelist James Baldwin on the question of, of that dream. Baldwin was a celebrated essayist. He wrote The Fire Next Time, No Name in the Street, and his unfinished manuscript, Remember This House, became a documentary film, Academy Award-nominated, a film called I Am Not Your Negro. Here is James Baldwin speaking at a debate at the Oxford University Union addressing the question, Is the American Dream at the expense of African-American people. I find myself, not for the first time, the position of a kind of Jeremiah. The inequality suffered by the American Negro population of the United States has hindered the American dream. The other deeper element of a certain awkwardness I feel has to do with, it has to do with one's point of view, I have to put it that way, one's, uh, one's sense, uh, one's system of reality. Is the American dream at the expense of the American Negro? Is a question hideously loaded, and that one's response to that question, or one's reaction to that question, has to depend on effect, an effect on where you find yourself in the world, what your sense of reality is, what your system of reality is. That is, it depends on assumptions which we hold so deeply as to be scarcely aware of them. A white South African, or a Mississippi sharecropper, or a Mississippi sheriff, or a Frenchman driven out of Algeria, all have, at bottom, a system of reality which compels them to, for example, in the case of the French exile from Algeria, to defend French reasons for having ruled Algeria. The Mississippi or the Alabama sheriff, who really does believe when he's facing a Negro boy or girl, that this woman, this man, this child, must be insane to attack the system to which he owes his entire identity. And on the other hand, I have to speak as one of the people who've been most attacked by what we must now here call the Western or the European system of reality. It comes from Europe. That's how it got to America. Beneath then, whatever one's reaction to this proposition is, has to be the question or whether or not civilizations can be considered as such equal, or whether one civilization has the right to overtake and subjugate and in fact to destroy another. Now what happens when that happens? Leaving aside all the physical facts which one can quote, leaving aside rape or murder, leaving aside the bloody catalog of oppression, which we are in one way too familiar with already, what this does to the subjugated, the most private, the most serious thing this does to the subjugated, is to destroy his sense of reality. It destroys, for example, his, uh, his father's authority over him. 
His father can no longer tell him anything because the past has disappeared. And his father has no power in the world. This means, in the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, and in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white, and since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover the flag to which you have pledged allegiance along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. <coughs> the disaffection, the demoralization, and the gap between one person and another only on the basis of the color of their skins begins there and accelerates, accelerates throughout a whole lifetime so that presently you realize you're 30 and are having a terrible time managing to trust your countrymen. By the time you are 30, you have been through a certain kind of mill. And the most serious effect of the mill you've been through is again not the catalog of disaster. The policemen, the taxi drivers, the waiters, the landlady, the landlord, the banks, the insurance companies, the millions of details, 24 hours of every day, which spell out to you that you are a worthless human being. It is not that. It's by that time you've begun to see it happening in your daughter or your son or your niece or your nephew. You are 30 by now and nothing you have done has helped you to escape the trap. But what is worse than that is that nothing you have done and as far as you can tell, nothing you can do will save your son or your daughter from meeting the same disaster and not impossibly coming to the same end. Now, we're speaking about expense. I suppose there are several ways to address oneself to some attempt to define what that word means here. Let me put it this way. That from a very literal point of view, the harbors and the ports and the railroads of the country. The economy, especially of the southern states, could not conceivably be what it has become if they had not had, and do not still have indeed, and for so long, so many generations, cheap labor. I. I'm stating very seriously, and this is not an overstatement, that I picked the cotton, and I carried it to market, and I built the railroads under someone else's whip 
for nothing. For nothing. The southern oligarchy, which has until today so much power in Washington, and therefore some power in the world, was created by my labor and my sweat, and the violation of my women and the murder of my children. This, in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And no one can challenge that statement. It is a matter of historical record. In another way, this dream is at the expense of the American Negro. We're listening to James Baldwin, a famous novelist and essayist. He's debating there, is the American dream at the expense of the African-American people? And he's debating a famous right-winger by the name of William F. Buckley, Jr. Let's go to a song now called The Lord is King, He Knows I'm a Queen. It's from the songs of Tom Smith, and they'll be playing tomorrow at Baniapapa Park, and I'll give you the details after the song.
behaviour Slapped a man on the butt Just like a football player does I'm waiting for my chance, God Waiting for you to bless me Start a church for a lesbian And gay fellowship Because Lord Almighty's King That is The Lord is King, He Knows I'm a Queen by the songs of Tom Smith and they're playing tomorrow at Move 11 which is makeshift outdoor venue experiment which is in Baniapapa Park in West End, in the heart of West End just near the corner of Vulture and um, Melbourne Street. They're on tomorrow, Saturday, 14th of November uh, Tom's, the songs of Tom Smith are playing at 3pm. Before them is Franz Dowling, who will be playing a song of his later. And at 4pm is Cal Crilly. So that's a really good venue for people to go along to. And after you've been to the markets, maybe rock along to there and have a check them out. Um, now, we're, uh, we're listening to um, James Baldwin, the American novelist, talking about the American dream. And just remember that in this part of the speech it goes for about another 10 minutes he's talking in 1965 and uh, the predictions he makes well they pretty all pretty well all come true you're on the paradigm shift it's 25 past 12 let's go to james baldwin in the deep south you are dealing with a sheriff or a landlord or a landlady or the girl of the western union desk and she doesn't know quite who she's dealing with, by which I mean that if you're not part of the town and if you are a northern nigger, it shows in millions of ways. So she simply knows that it's an unknown quantity and she wants to have nothing to do with it. So she won't talk to you, you have to wait for a while to get your telegram. Okay, we all know this, we've been through it and by the time you get to be a man, it's very easy to deal with. But what is happening in the poor woman, the poor man's mind, is this. They've been raised to believe, and by now they helplessly believe, that no matter how terrible their lives may be, and their lives have been quite terrible, and no matter how far they fall, no matter what disaster overtakes them, they have one enormous knowledge and consolation, which is like a heavenly revelation. At least they are not black. Now, I suggest that of all the terrible things that can happen to a human being, that is one of the worst. I suggest that what has happened to white Southerners is in some ways, after all, much worse than what has happened to, what, to, to Negroes there. Because Sheriff Clark in Selma, Alabama, cannot be considered, you know, no one is, can be dismissed as a total monster. I'm sure he loves his wife, his children. I'm sure that, <laughs> no, he likes to get drunk. 
You know, he's, after all, one's got to assume, and he is visibly a man like me. But he doesn't know what drives him to use the club, to menace with the gun, and to use the cattle prod. Something awful must have happened to a human being to be able to put a cattle prod against a woman's breast, for example. What happens to the woman is ghastly. What happens to the man who does it is in some ways much, much worse. This is being done, after all, not a hundred years ago, but in 1965, in a country which is blessed with what we call prosperity, a word you won't examine too closely, with a certain kind of social coherence, which calls itself a civilized nation and which espouses the notion of the freedom of the world. And it is perfectly true from the point of view now simply of an American Negro. Any American Negro watching this, no matter where he is, from the vantage point of Harlem, which is another terrible place, has to say to himself, in spite of what the government says, the government says we can't do anything about it. But those are white people being murdered in Mississippi work farms, being carried off to jail. Those are white children running up and down the streets. The government would find some way of doing something about it. We have a civil rights bill now. We had an amendment, the 15th Amendment, nearly 100 years ago. I hate to sound again like an Old Testament prophet, but if the amendment was not honored then, I don't have any reason for believing the civil rights bill will be honored now. And after all, one's been there since before, you know, a lot of other people got there. If one has got to prove one's title to the land, isn't 400 years enough? 400 years, at least three wars? The American soil is full of the corpses of my ancestors. Why is my freedom or my citizenship or my right to live there, how is it conceivably a question now? And I suggest further that in the same way, the moral life of Alabama sheriffs and poor Alabama ladies, white ladies, if their moral lives have been destroyed by the plague called color, that the American sense of reality has been corrupted by it. At the risk of sounding excessive, what I always felt when I finally left the country, found myself abroad in other places, and these are my countrymen, and I do care about them. And even if I didn't, there is something between us. We have the same shorthand. I know when I look at a girl or a boy from Tennessee, where they came from in Tennessee, and what that means. No Englishman knows that, no Frenchman, no one in the world knows that except another black man who comes from the same place. One watches these lonely people denying the only kin they have. We talk about integration in America as though it were some great new conundrum. The problem in America is that we've been integrated for a very long time. Put me next to any African and you will see what I mean. And my grandmother was not a rapist. What we are not facing is the results of what we've done. What one begs the American people to do for all our sakes is simply to accept our history. I was there not only as a slave, but also as a concubine. One knows the power, after all, which can be used against another person if you've got absolute power over that person. It seemed to me when I watched Americans in Europe that what they didn't know about Europeans was what they didn't know about me. They weren't trying, for example, to be nasty to the French girl or rude to the French waiter. They didn't know they hurt their feelings. They didn't have any sense this particular woman, this particular man, though they spoke another language and had different manners and ways, was a human being. And they walked over them with the same kind of bland ignorance, condescension, charming and cheerful, with which they'd always patted me on the head and called me shine, and were upset when I was upset. What is relevant about this is that whereas 40 years ago when I was born, the question of having to deal with 
what is unspoken by the subjugated, what is never said to the master. However, having to deal with this reality was a very remote, very remote possibility. It was in no one's mind. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I, that I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. Everyone else seemed to agree. If you walk out of Harlem, ride out of Harlem, downtown, the world agrees. What you see is much bigger, cleaner, whiter, richer, safer than where you are. They collect the garbage. People obviously can pay their life insurance. The children look happy, safe. You're not. And you go back home. And it would seem then, of course, that it's an act of God that this is true. That you belong where white people have put... It is only since the Second World War that there's been a counter-image in the world. And that image not come about through any legislation on the part of any American government, but through the fact that Africa was suddenly on the stage of the world and Africans had to be dealt with in a way they'd never been dealt with before. This gave an American Negro for the first time a sense of himself beyond a savage or a clown. It has created and will create a great many conundrums. One of the great things that the white world does not know, but I think I do know, is that black people are just like everybody else. One has used the myth of Negro and the myth of color to pretend and to assume that you are dealing essentially with something exotic, bizarre, and practically according to human laws unknown. Alas, it is not true. We are also mercenaries, dictators, murderers, liars. We are human too. What is crucial here unless we can manage to establish some kind of dialogue between those people whom I pretend has paid for the American dream and those other people who have not achieved it, we will be in terrible trouble. I want to say at the end, at the last, is that that is what concerns me most. We are sitting in this room and we are all, at least we like to think we are, relatively civilized. And we can talk to each other at least on certain levels. So that we could walk out of here assuming that the measure of our enlightenment or at least our politeness has some effect on the world. It may not. I remember, for example, when the ex-attorney general, Mr. Robert Kennedy, said that it was conceivable that in 40 years in America, we might have a Negro president. And that sounded like a very emancipated statement, I suppose, to white people. They were not in Harlem when this statement was first heard and did not hear and possibly will never hear the laughter and the bitterness and the scorn in which the statement was greeted. From the point of view of the man in the Harlem barbershop, Bobby Kennedy only got here yesterday. And now he's already on his way to the presidency. We've been here for 400 years, and now he tells us that maybe in 40 years, if you're good, we may let you become president. What is dangerous here is the turning away from, the turning away from, Anything any white American says, the reason for the political hesitation and in spite of the Johnson landslide is the one that's been betrayed by American politicians for so long. 
And I am, I'm a grown man, and perhaps I can be reasoned with. I certainly hope I can be. But I don't know. And neither does Martin Luther King. None of us know how to deal with those other people whom the white world has so long ignored, who don't believe anything the white world says, and don't entirely believe anything I or Martin say. And one can't blame them. You watch what has happened to them in less than 20 years. It seems to me that the city of New York, for example, this is my last point, which had Negroes in it for a very long time. If the city of New York were able, as it has indeed been able, in the last 15 years to reconstruct itself, tear down buildings and raise great new ones, downtown and for money, and has done nothing whatever except build housing projects in the ghetto for the Negroes. And of course, the Negroes hate it. Presently, the property does indeed deteriorate because the children cannot bear it. They want to get out of the ghetto. If the American pretensions were based on more solid, a more honest assessment of life and of themselves, it would not mean for Negroes, when someone says urban renewal, that Negroes simply are going to be thrown out into the streets, which is what it does mean now. This is not an act of God. We're dealing with a society made and ruled by men. If the American Negro had not been present in America, I am convinced that the history of the American labor movement would be much more edifying than it is. It is a terrible thing for an entire people to surrender to the notion that one-ninth of its population is beneath them. And until that moment, until the moment comes, when we, the Americans, we, the American people, are able to accept the fact that I have to accept, for example, that my ancestors are both white and black, that on that continent we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other, and that I am not a ward of America. I am not an object of missionary charity. I am one of the people who built the country. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream because the people who are denied participation in it by their very presence will wreck it. You're on the paradigm shift. That was James Baldwin speaking at the Oxford University Union about the American dream in 1965. Wind forward 50 years and we have President Barack Obama in one of his very last media interviews. He is asked by a student reporter, Patrick Forrest, uh, as to whether the US elections are rigged. Now we know that um, Trump seems to think that they were rigged. Now let's have a little bit of a listen to a more nuanced version of the American dream and democracy by President Obama. Um, what, earlier today, we talk, one thing we talked about was uh, civic engagement and a line you used in the State of the Union address of don't give in to the cynicism of the day. Right. All released by Reuters yesterday showed that uh, nearly half of Americans feel that uh, the elections are rigged in some way. Yeah. Is there any goal or plan for the administration to help revitalize the faith in democracy that is seemingly lacking? Well, you know what? The, the, this is something that I've tried to do ever since I got into public office. As you know, I came into uh, this work as a community organizer and strongly believe that our democracy only works when people participate. You know, there are a lot of forces that feed cynicism. And there's no dispute that our democracy is not working as well as it should. 
Uh, I can tell you uh, some of the reasons for that. Uh, one of it is that uh, we have set up uh, a system for electing state legislatures and members of Congress that involve the drawing of district lines that are uh, gerrymandered. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the phrase, it basically means that uh, those who are already in power draw the maps in such a way where they can be assured that these are either going to be Democratic seats or Republican seats. And what that's done is it's made very few seats competitive. Uh, so, for example, in the last election in 2012, Democrats actually cast substantially more votes in uh, in congressional elections, uh, but ended up with substantially fewer seats. Uh, and the reason for that is in 2010, when the census was done and redistricting of congressional and House legislative seats uh, were drawn, uh, Republican governors and Republican uh, majorities uh, were responsible for drawing most of the seats. Uh, now, you know, I want to be clear, Democrats aren't blameless on this either. Uh, but California, for example, has gone to a process of nonpartisan districting. The advantage there is not only do you make more seats competitive, but it also means that uh, politicians have to compete for everybody's votes because they're not in safe seats. They're not in a safely Republican uh, district or Democratic district. And what that does is it means uh, they've got to not just appeal to the extremes of their party. Part of the reason we've seen polarization and gridlock here in Washington is because uh, there's been this great sorting and Democrats have moved much further, uh, have, have moved left. Republicans have just gone way to the right. And uh, it's harder than to compromise because uh, members of Congress, and this same thing is true in, in state legislatures, are always looking over their shoulders seeing if somebody in their own party uh, might challenge them. And then the system doesn't work. So that's a big chunk of uh, why people are cynical. Because uh, they feel like they don't, uh, their votes don't count, and if you draw districts that are ironclad one party or another, then they're not entirely wrong. Another uh, reason that people are cynical is money in politics. Uh, the Supreme Court issued a, a ruling, Citizens United, that allowed uh, super PACs and uh, very wealthy individuals to just finance all these ads that you guys see on TV all the time. Half the time, nobody knows who's funding them, and. Uh, that makes you cynical, partly because most of this money is spent on negative ads. And so you're just hearing constantly how horrible everybody is. Uh, that'll make you feel pretty bad about the political process. And uh, I'm a strong believer in uh, you know, finding ways in which we can make the financing of campaigns more democratic. Now, we've seen some interesting work being done for, you know, you've got to give Bernie Sanders, for example, credit. Um, building off some of the work that I did. I, in turn, <coughs> built off the work that Howard Dean did for smaller donations, grassroots donors, uh, to uh, be able, to, in small contributions, to allow candidates to be competitive. But I think that uh, we don't want to leave that to chance. Uh, and that's much harder to do for members of Congress uh, who are lower profile so they don't get the uh, sort of viral presence that allows them to raise that kind of money to compete. So we're going to have to solve money in politics. Um, 
you as journalists are going to have a role to play in reducing cynicism. It is very hard to get good stories placed. You know, people will uh, assign you stories about what's not working. It's very hard for you to write a story about, wow, this thing really works good. And just to take the federal government as an example, every day I've got two million people who work for the federal government, whether in our military, our law enforcement, our uh, you know, environmental protection, helping veterans, et cetera, and they are doing great work. And you rely on it in all kinds of ways, including when you check the weather, because you can thank uh, the National Weather Service for putting satellites up so your smartphones tell you whether to bring an umbrella or not. But we just take that for granted. And if out of those two million employees, one person screws up somewhere, which every day you can count on somebody out of two million people probably uh, doing something uh, they shouldn't be doing, that, that's what's going to get reported on. Now, that helps keep government on its toes and accountable, uh, but one of the things we have to think about is how do we tell a story about the things we do together that actually work uh, so that people don't feel so cynical uh, overall. Um, but look, he, he, here's, here's, here's the bottom line, uh, is that let's take the political process. As cynical as everybody is, and everybody's always trying to come up with these radical new plans to try to fix our democracy, and we need to do this, and we need to do that. The truth is, is that part of the reason why our government doesn't work as well is because in a good presidential year, slightly more than half the people vote who are eligible. And the other half don't. And during an off-year election, when the president's not at the top of the ticket and people aren't getting as much attention, 40% of the people vote. Now, this system doesn't work if people opt out. And the easiest cure, the simplest cure for what ails our democracy is everybody voting. Now, it's true that there's some states that purposely make it hard for people to vote. We're the only major democracy in the world that actively makes it hard for people to vote. Uh, and so you should be, particularly as uh, in, in your student newspapers, as you go back to your home states, you should be asking, why is it that we have laws that are purposely making it harder for people to vote, purposely making it harder for young people to vote? And, and there's a political agenda there. The people in power don't want things to change. They want cynicism. Because obviously the existing system, as frustrating as it is for everybody else, works for them. Well, if you want to upend that, we got to vote. But even in those states that purposely make it harder to vote, the truth of the matter is on your college campuses, half the folks, maybe two-thirds of the folks who don't vote, don't vote because they're just not paying attention. They don't consider it important. And they're not willing to take the 15 minutes or half hour that it takes to make sure that you're registered and make sure you actually vote. Well, if you care about climate change, you care about college costs, you care about uh, career opportunities, you care about war and peace and refugees, you can't just complain. You got to vote. 
And what's interesting is, is young people, uh, as a uh, as a voting block, are the least likely to vote. But when you do vote, have the biggest impact on elections. During a presidential year, young people account for like 19% of the total vote. During an off-year election, when folks aren't paying as much attention, they account for 12%. And that means that the kinds of candidates that get elected and the priorities that they reflect are entirely different, just based on whether or not you guys are going to the polls. So don't let people tell you that what you do doesn't matter. It does. Don't give away your power. That should be the main message that you deliver uh, all the time. And it doesn't matter you know, uh, whether it's you're a Republican, Democrat, Independent, whether you're conservative on some issues, liberal on others. If you participate and you take the time to be informed about the issues and you actually turn out and your peers turn out, you change the country. You do. It may not always happen as fast as you'd like, but you'll change it. So I'll keep on talking about this even after I leave the presidency. I'm, th 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 this is, you got me started. I went on a rant, didn't I? <laughs> All right. So I'm counting on you guys. Don't let me down. All right? Don't let the country down. You guys are going to be delivering the message to your peer group uh, that uh, this is the greatest country on earth, but only because we have great citizens who are willing to invest their time and energy and effort become informed on the issues, to argue about it in a uh, respectful way, and uh, to try to s collectively solve the, the many challenges that we face. The good news is, is that there are no challenges, as uh, JFK said, that man creates that man can't solve. I would add women to that. <laughs> the U.S. has been conducting drone strikes in Yemen for the last 16 years. The so-called signature strikes have aimed to suppress members of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. But the campaign has killed scores of civilians targeting houses, schools, hospitals, markets, and even wedding processions. They would kill two or three from Al-Qaeda on one hand, and 10 or 15 civilians on the other hand. Where's this Al-Qaeda they claim to be killing? There are many other incidents like ours due to bombs. They just kill us without even making sure that we are innocent or not. There are no reports of the precise number of civilian deaths due to the difficulty in confirming the identities of those killed. And the U.S. government does not provide adequate explanations detailing their strikes. There are no better friends than the United States and Australia. Are you confident that Australian officials involved in intelligence transfers to the U.S. through facilities like Pine Gap are immune from future accusations or allegations of assisting war crimes? I'm very confident without admitting any of the assertions or premises of your question. ASIO and its officers operate in accordance with Australian law. Mothers and fathers want to know why their children were killed. I lay there gasping my last breath Close by me lie the bodies of those I love This man before me must be dead In green and brown he followed the beast above Amidst the screams of agony 
somehow the worst pain I feel burns in my heart The tears bring flooding memories Our lives of simple join how shattered apart And I thought, why do they come here? Those demons of hell Death's servant angels I fear they were summoned by an evil spell What have we done to deserve a horror such as this? As I beg Allah for the answer I'm greeted by death's kiss She sat there staring at the screen her last task of the day was plaguing her thoughts A secret base in Alice Springs So far away her job still made her distraught Yes, she thought upon who were we really still Those demons of hell Suspecting Severus, their guilt is clear but God, can we truly tell? Well, this power we possess Deep down inside I condemn But I have family back home in the U.S. So I'll say I'm protecting them Slowly through the bodies Stopped short upon the side of a dying child The pain inside him came with tears Still no innocence read the report he filed But he thought, why do we send them here? Those demons of hell to believe it as well No amount of lies they say can take my guilt and shame No God to whom I pray would justify this pain No God to whom I pray would justify this pain That was the Peace Pilgrims uh, featuring on vocals there France Dowling uh, with uh, drones and a very uh, important message there especially given what Obama had said 
that's about the end of the show for us here. Before we leave, we're going to go out with a, a sort of a response to Obama and to the the problems that have been beset the United States in recent times and particularly the very bad effect that they've had on the world regarding foreign policy. Uh, this is a song written by, I think he's a Cuban, Ruben Galeando. The original arrangement was by Grupo Moncada, which is a reference to the Moncada barracks where the revolution occurred in Cuba and which was resisted at the Bay of Pigs. John F. Kennedy, of course, sent Contras to Cuba to um, try to stop the revolution there and the response was very strong by the Cuban people. They just resisted the U.S. imperialism. So the last song is called Strike the Beast Hard. It is sung by Sue Monk, a local musician, and Sergio Aldenate, and it's in Spanish, so I'm just going to uh, translate the first few words. Strike the beast hard because if you don't it will leave you hunger. Strike it because they'll kill you and they'll cover you with earth. Sing your thousand songs and set out walking with your wounds and together we'll go to the forest to sing and then to live. See ya. Pégale porque te mata Y te echan la tierra encima Canta tus mil canciones Y echa andar con tus heridas Y juntos iremos al monte A cantar luego a la vida quemaba la tierra nació un niño en la montaña en una cuna de piedra una que lo envenenaba abrió sus ojos al mundo y no vio más que miseria tocó al infierno más crudo donde el fuego lo atacaba crecí entre las espinas donde el humo fue metralla los finales de los andes cobijo yo